how to realize that it's not really a problem that we fix it and we're done. It's a part of our self-care that we nurture and we love and we touch and we revisit. And that goes on, that goes on. As children grow, their relationship to sleep evolves. By toddlerhood, young children have much more nuanced and complicated feelings and behavior surrounding their naptime and nighttime routines and rhythms, and we see different types of regression during this period of time. I am beyond thrilled to welcome Rye Associate Eileen Henry back to the podcast to talk all things toddler sleep. Eileen is the founder of Compassionate Sleep Solutions, and the author of the book, The Compassionate Sleep Solution, Calming the Cry. From utilizing playful elements like storytelling and lullabies to addressing our kids' dreams and their nightmares, and even to finding this balance between allowing your child to have the autonomy they're craving while holding firm boundaries around sleep, we're going to get into so much in this episode, and it's going to help anybody who's looking to foster healthy sleep habits and healthy sleep skills that can last your child a lifetime, and maybe even buy you a few more minutes of coveted alone time in the evenings too. Do you wish you knew exactly what to do before, during, and after your child's tantrums? Not just to get them to stop, but to stop in a way that actually benefits their development, their mental health, and their relationship to you. That is exactly why I made The Science of Tantrums, a highly targeted framework created by me, a clinical psychologist and mom of two toddlers, to help you understand what exactly is happening in your child's brain and their body when they have a tantrum. And I'll teach you the most effective tools to reduce the frequency, duration, and intensity of dysregulation over time. Over my 12 years of clinical experience, I have honed strategies that I have seen work with everyone from developmentally typical children to those with some of the most severe cases of behavioral and emotional disorders. I know this works because I've seen it work time and time again. To learn more and to sign up for the Science of Tantrums, go to drsarahbren.com forward slash tantrums. That's drsarahbren.com forward slash tantrums. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey and distilled everything down into easy-to-understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Welcome, everyone. Today, I am like just super excited that Eileen Henry has come back to the podcast. If you haven't listened to our episode earlier about sleep, go back and listen to that. But this, today we're going to be talking all about toddler sleep, which is like a whole other beast from infant sleep. Uh, Eileen, I'm so happy to see you and I'm so glad you're here. It's great. Thank you, Sarah. Um, so the reason why I was so excited to reach out to you to come back on the podcast was because we had this really great episode that kind of laid the foundations of like, how do you set the stage for sleep and and infancy and like all that great stuff. But I think when toddlers, I feel like as kids 
evolve in their relationship to sleep and their relationship to their parents and their relationship to themselves, things change drastically when it comes to sleep and sleep behaviors. And so I get so many questions about things related to delaying bedtime and moving like transitions to other types of like sleeping in your own bed and staying in your bed and all kinds of things. So I just, you know, we can get into everything, but I'm curious, like where, where do you like to start parents off when you're talking about like the nuance of toddler sleep? So I, I usually start off with the fact that toddlers are capable, competent, they're able to sleep. They're, they're in moving into that full blown stage of autonomy, right? And so they can sleep autonomously. And that's generally where everybody gets better sleep when the toddler transitions into their own space, be it in their own space, if the family's really committed to room sharing, co-sleeping into their own space there or into their own room, into their own space, that they're really capable of it because we're going with development and autonomy. However, the toddler naturally has to confront the feelings that arise and it's it's a very human it's it's there parts of the self we we grapple with for the rest of our lives and toddlers are meeting this material for the first time ambiguity ambivalence paradox all of this both and kind of situation yes. you know they they have positive feelings i want to do it myself you know they get stop it i want to do it myself they push us away and then the next minute it's like wait a minute where are you going i want to climb back up inside of you <laughs> yes we're ambivalent about that mm-hmm. um, then and this is where the paradox comes of how do we hold on to the attachment to the closeness to the, our presence and and the bond and have that other need met that happens in family life is self-preservation, autonomy, authenticity, that the toddler is now fitting in to the family's needs. Yeah. And I think that's where parents get really sort of frazzled sometimes because, you know, obviously sleep is hard. Getting your kid to sleep, getting your own sleep is hard from like pregnancy yeah. And then all the way on to like many, many, many years after your kid has been born. But I do think like, you know, we spend a lot of time as parents kind of obsessing about sleep in those early months and that first year. Yes. And I'm sure you get a lot of people calling you to work with them through that period of like sleep training and sleep learning mm-hmm. and co-sleeping versus separate. Like, how do you do that? But then I think we we don't give parents as many resources for understanding that there's the evolution of a sleep relationship goes on for many 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 years and it, there's a lot of you know forward progress and and what feels like backward progress but just kind of like natural regression like i take a step forward and i take one back and then i got to keep moving. it's it's an up and down process yes. and i think parents get really confused by that yeah. I mean, if you think about just our adults, and when I look at the basic needs, I'm looking at relationship first, the attachment first, right? Quality relationship, quality sleep, quality nutrition, and downtime, relaxation time for the child that's playtime. Yeah. 
And if we can normalize the fact in our home as we're raising our children that, hey, life affects this. Life affects that. Travel, illness, people coming to visit, holidays. It affects, always affects my sleep, my diet. I can't eat a whole pecan pie all year round. But Mm -hmm. over the course of a few days around Christmas, I get a whole pecan pie and I have a piece with breakfast. Now, I can't do that every morning, but... That holiday affects my nutrition. <laughs> affects yeah. how I eat. It affects my sleep. And so we want to normalize that so that our children can be flexible. If they're mm-hmm. ill, if they have, you know, the double ear infection or something and we can't lay them down because their head throbs, we're going to hold them. But what we don't want to do is find ourselves six months, a year later, still holding them up all night to sleep. Yeah. So how to have how to realize that that it's not really a problem that we fix it and we're done. It's a part of our self-care that we nurture and we love and we touch and we revisit. And that goes on, that goes on. Yeah. It's interesting because as you're talking, it's even making me realize like, okay, even I as an adult have periods in my life where I have more difficulty with my sleep, my own sleep, independent of my children because my children definitely affect my sleep. But if I were to try to like isolate that variable out and just look at like my own behaviors and my own moods and my own stress levels and how those, how those things have like seasons and impact my sleep in different ways, like we do fluctuate as well. Yes. Hormonally. I mean, women know that the cycles of our hormones and that directly affects our sleep. Some Mm -hmm. of us more profoundly than others. Right. And so I think maybe there's almost like a relearning of like what our expectations should be, because I think parents do think that there should be this sort of like, if I'm doing it right, my child will learn how to have consistent, stable sleep that doesn't really change anymore. And that's, I think maybe that's a reframe we all have to kind of remember is like, well, that's not realistic for your child, for you. That's not how sleep really works. Not, not really. I like the 80, 20 rule, you know, 80% of the time, we're consistent. We're, we're, um, you know, we have our routine. Things are going well. And the other twenty percent of the time, life happens. We're in the midst of a, a developmental shift and a change, and we're kind of winging it, you know, through the mm-hmm. shift. That to me really demonstrates to our children that we're human. That we we're never going to do it. It's never going to be all smooth, all perfect, all the time. That's a delusion. (laughs) And I think the pandemic really blew the lid off of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, too, to think of, like, as kids who might have previously gotten really used to, like, a more stable, like, insular existence, having to go out on vacations, fly places, have people come and stay and visit now. You know, their worlds are bigger, which means... That's going to also impact sleep. Yes. Yeah. And how how to nurture that in a way and touch it in a way that the child can relate to that. So how do you do that? Yeah. Tell me more about that. So that is uh, storytelling, which is an ancient form of human, you know, how humans dealt with the world through storytelling long before written language. Uh, storytelling, lullaby. I'm really into lullaby. Um, the oldest recorded lullaby we have is like 5,000 
6,000 years old, you know, that we was passed down generationally and, uh, and it's, it's the perfect primer for sleep. Um, it meets and, and, and yeah, music in general helps humans deal with, uh, areas of life that are difficult to look into. Mm-hmm. Um, so story playfulness in a lighthearted playfulness, not the kind of active play we're going to do during the day, mm-hmm. but a specific kind of play that, that gets the child into a place that their nervous system can relax. So I like to say, I like to use the toddler's creative medium, which is yes. story play and language very specifically and music. If that's part of the family's, you know, if that's in their wheelhouse to yeah. make up lullabies, make up a personalized lullaby. The easiest thing to do mm-hmm. is take a tune you love, make up some words for your child, that it's their own personal lullaby. It's, it's almost an irresistible invitation into the relational field that's, that's strengthened by a creative connection with the parent and the mm-hmm. child. Yes. It's so funny because I literally... Uh, my, my sister, they're like doing a renovation. They were living with us and their two sons were living with us for like months. And so I got to like live with my nephews for a couple months and my, my youngest nephews too. And my sister sings him this made up song every night. And you know, the benefit of having two grown up couples in the household was like, we would go on dates. Like, so we could be, I would watch her kids and they would go out and we'd switch, oh, but I got perfect. to put my nephews to bed a couple of times and they would be like, okay, sing this song. And it was like this really embedded ritual that like, it meant so much to their r- bedtime routine. And and they sang it to me and they taught it to me. And it was, a it, it, the thing I liked about this is it was, um, it's kind of like a dialogue, the song. So it's, oh. you know, you say, it's like, oh, how does it go? It's like, Oh my name, oh my name, oh my name, I love you. And then they just say someone else's name. So my nephew would just be like, okay, do, you know, do grandpa, do Charlie, do Sadie. And he would just call out the people that he wanted my sister to like sing, I love you to. And they would, they would just like have this cute little dialogue. And now that I'm thinking about it, my dad had this song too, that he would sing to us that was about like, it, again, it was like a little tiny ditty where it was about everyone's name and um, love it. It's- Beautiful. So what this does, that's, that is a specific thing. What it's doing is it's helping the jo- child children bridge their separateness. I get chills. I get ah! chills and my eyes want to tear up. It bridges the separateness and it recalls and reminds them of their loved ones that they get to think about and internalize all of the bonds, not just the bond with the parent, but all of the people they love. And they get to hold that and take it into the unconscious dream world. And that reconnection, I tell parents, like bring in ancestors, bring in families, bring in the grandparents, bring, have a picture of them, have something that grandma made or something that, to connect them and it bridges the separateness so that they can, they can let go. 
and be reunited with their loved ones in the morning. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's, that's a perfect little ditty. <laughs> it is. And like, you know, you've talked about this before, this idea of letting go and how that's one of the biggest challenges with sleep, even in infancy, but I think even more so in toddlerhood because that object permanence is there now. They yeah. know that when you're not with them, you're somewhere else. Yes. And that's very hard for kids to tolerate. And they, they get FOMO and they get they get activated by the idea of not being with you in a different way than a baby, you yes. know? And so this, this letting go is more challenging at this age. It is. They're, they're especially with language. They're starting to make those inroads into the prefrontal cortex and they have language. And I mean, language is beautiful. The prefrontal cortex is responsible for everything I see in this room right now, but it kind of freaks us out. Mm-hmm. We start to tell ourselves things. <laughs> we start to talk to ourselves in ways that can kind of freak us out. Yeah. And so that's where language can come in to help soothe those, those little stories that they're telling. Because, And mm-hmm. you brought up ritual, too. Ritual is super um, – it, it gives it meaning. So we want to create a ritual that gives meaning, but that also helps children navigate. Because what they have to navigate is the conscious, that liminal space between consciousness when we let go and go into the subconscious and the unconscious of sleep, which is full of the shadow material, right? It's full of our shadow. Can you talk more about, if parents are like listening and they're like, what is shadow material? What is the... What is, what do you mean in that's, what is this space in the unconscious mind? How would you describe that? So that is, here's a good example. When toddlers, it's a phenomenon in my practice that I'll get like a string of toddlers. Like the last two weeks, all I've had were toddlers. Mm -hmm. And I've had several toddlers who have a new baby coming. Mm Mm-hmm. It is a phenomenon. They all start dreaming about apex predators. They all start dreaming about great white sharks, bears, big animals with big teeth. And that is so everything we confront in the dreams and the unconscious and the subconscious, they're just elements of ourselves. It's just parts Mm -hmm. of ourselves. And so I think it's no coincidence that toddlers are having some big feelings that could be anger. It could be frustration. It could be fear of this new being. And they can't quite conceptualize the true impact that a sibling is going to have on them for the rest of their lives. You know, that context Mm -hmm. grows and expands. It's a wonderful part of siblings, but it's also, there's some conflict and challenge in the sibling relationship. And they don't quite know it, what's coming, but something's coming. They can see all the preparation and then the baby comes and they all start dreaming about lions, tigers, and bears. <laughs> I wonder too, like, I'm curious your take on this. Cause like my like psychoanalytic mind is like, yeah, Ooh, of course. Who, is, who is the great white shark in this? Is it them? Is it, I'm scared of how my like aggression and my rage is going to come out. Is it I feel, is it a mystery kind of threat? Like, because my parents are attending to this other being, my protection's not watching me, so I'm more vulnerable to these, you know, mystery great white sharks or bears. 
Yeah, I think it's yes, yes, and, and possibly. Mm. <laughs> I think it's all of the above. And I find it really fascinating because that's when, when using that, and I tell this story about a little girl who had an alligator under her bed and her mm. mom talking to her about, you know, I don't think that alligator is hungry for little girls. I wonder what she's hungry for. So in helping children navigate this space, I use, there's a, there's a Tibetan practice of um, putting the, the, the monsters, you know, the, any monsters that come up within, let's say my anxiety, I call it my anxiety monster, mm-hmm. putting it in a chair across from me and asking it what it wants. And so in that, there's a very simple process we can do with a child. I wonder what that alligator wants. I wonder, maybe it just wants attention. Maybe it wants regard. Maybe it wants love. So my anxiety, what it usually wants is soothing and love and integration and bringing it in. So she and her mother decided to get a cat bowl. They have a cat and they cut out little hearts. She was about, she was almost three years old. They cut out hearts and put it in the bowl and put it under the bed transform that alligator. Two weeks later, (laughs) her mother sends me an email and says, wow, not only is that alligator okay, she's integrated into her play. And my daughter's a bit of a dominatrix. She's like ordering that alligator around, telling it to sit and stay. And it can't be. And she's very controlling of the alligator. And that's how she integrated and then she's loving and wonderful and she's working out her this emotional material with the alligator and her mother noticed that she with the new baby it's less squeezing them and loving them to death you know how they do yeah, yeah. oh I love this baby <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> so much no, interesting and also I imagine too like as a three-year-old who has a new sibling, there's such a lack of control. Like they already, three-year-olds don't have a solid, they don't really get much to control at all. Right. But that, like, that lack of control that comes with your environment changing so drastically can activate this really intense need for control, which is where I think parents see a lot of like intense, weird acting out and like defiance or refusal or like you know, digging in heels because they're looking desperately for that to control. And it sounds like this yeah. girl was able to sort of direct that need and find that control within this imaginary, you know, this mad in this imaginary space with this alligator yeah. and could release that need for control and find that satisfaction. And in a way that allowed her to like feel less agitated and more comfortable with the in interacting in real life with a sibling. It was amazing. It was so cool. And it evolved over weeks over weeks Mm -hmm. of playing with it. And that to me is the child's literally playground where they get to have within, you know, as long as they're safe, as long as it's, but where they get the most control. That's where I say like in the play space, that's where we want them to really go to town. Yeah. And one question I have for you that I can imagine maybe parents having in their head as they're listening is like, okay, I, you're, you are trained in this. I'm trained in play therapy. Parents aren't always. And I think parents are sometimes like afraid when themes like 
scary stuff comes up in play or scary stuff comes up in the, right before bedtime. Yeah. Parents are always like, I don't want to touch that because if I pull on that thread, we are not going to go to bed. Um, or if we talk too much about this, I'm going to make them more scared. And so what, what are some things that you could like, what can parents, what are some frameworks for parents when they're, when their kids bring up either scary or challenging material before bed and what's the bet we want to strike that balance between not like pulling too big on those threads and opening it wide up, but also being able to stay with it a little bit to help them process it. Right. So the first thing I invite parents to do is to notice in their toddler, a very human quality that we're fascinated with fear. We are, I mean, I don't, but people pay money to go sit in a theater and get scared. I don't get yeah. <laughs> I don't get that. I can do that all on my own. In my brain. <laughs> That's why I don't go to scary movies. I'm like, I got my imagination is way too wild to go watch scary yeah. movies because then exactly. I'm like for months like taking it too far in my I head. I have to be careful what I read before bed. Mm-hmm. You know? So there's this human fascination. Toddlers, even babies, like part of peekaboo is <gasps> yeah. playing with that edge. Um, hide and seek. Oh, that's really playing with it. Mm-hmm. That's really playing when children play hide and seek. That moment where am I going to be found? Am I going to be found? And classically, young children will pop out and give themselves away and not let themselves be found. Right. So right. they're controlling the amount of fear that they're willing to hold in their little yes. systems. So just kind of noticing that stuff. I notice it. Parents will notice it with twins that they like to scare each other and they like to cry about it and laugh about it at the same Mm -hmm. time and allowing that, allowing it and really observing it in them. I do recommend that when it comes to bedtime, if something comes up, not to ask a lot of questions about it, but to let it unfold, receive it. And like we do with separation anxiety, just normalize that for children. Like, yeah, scary. You had some scary dreams. Uh, Yeah. That's a thing. We want them to know that's a thing. And Mm -hmm. then gently as the child in, there's a moment, like if, if we're engaging with a child about some material that's coming up for them and we do, we mostly listen, attune. And then usually there's a moment where the child opens, like it, it looks different in, all children, but that they're ready to receive something, that's Mm -hmm. when we can say, I wonder what we could give you that could help you with that. I love that. And that's why I like to use um, items that the child's interested in, you know, and we can offer stuffies are great support animals, you know, and sometimes they have qualities of protection. So I have two brothers who were really, they're potty learning, right? And so they had to get up and go to the potty in the night and suddenly the bathroom was scary and they needed to go into the parents' bathroom and walk through their bedroom to get there. That was handy because then they could jump in bed with them, right? Mm -hmm. And so we redirected the whole thing. They love construction sites. So we redirected the like no stop sign on parents' door, not in there, caution tape into the bathroom. And we're like, what could we put in the bathroom that would create a safe space for you? And dinosaurs just love to protect 
little boys. And so there were dinosaurs on the sink and there, and suddenly it became an okay space Mm -hmm. that we gave them markers of their interests in their world and what they love in the environment and a story that helped redirect them. And then it was fine. They'd get up, go to the bathroom and come out. Right. And I think at the core of that is that representation of safety. Yes. Right. Yes. I mean, all of it, like stalling at bedtime, waking up in the night and crawling into mom and dad's bed or your parents' bed, not wanting to, you know, sleep with the lights off, not wanting to, you know, only wanting to wear one pair of pajamas and just, you know, if they're not clean, it's a total, that's it. It's a, it's the, <laughs> it is the end of the world, right? All of this is really about how will I feel? Will I feel safe? What will that feel like if I, ha- if I can't have that thing or if I have to do this thing? And so, and I think parents sometimes and this is so, and I'll speak for myself as a parent who very much is looking for that break after bedtime. And, and my bandwidth is just spent by the time oh, yeah. it, that fifth request for a glass of water, I'm oh, like, yeah. just go to bed because I'm like, I know what's on the other side of that bed time. Yes, and my time. Yes. And I'm so desperate for it. So I say all this knowing it is very hard to be patient. But that's why I think a lot of the stuff you're talking about are things that we're kind of thinking about doing outside of the stalling moments, but to set it up in advance. And we could definitely talk about that. But I think we have to remember as parents what our biggest goal in our interventions in the stalling moments is, is to maintain that sense of safety. And so our regulation is going to mirror and, you know, speak to their brain and their nervous system Mom thinks this is safe because her body is saying it's safe. Yeah. Um, but to just kind of validate, yeah, that doesn't feel safe. I wonder what we could do to make it feel a little yeah. safer. Yeah, I wonder what would make it feel safe. Because the safety and security is really our responsibility to infuse imprint on both the physical and the emotional environment. And you bring up a really good point. Because at the end of the day, that's when we're least resourced. Yeah. And so if we can save just enough resources to be gracious, to be lighthearted, to be a little playful, and to be, and when we can't, because there are plenty of times we can't, mm-hmm. I remember, it's like, just go to sleep, gritted yeah. teeth, right? Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I think it's okay that they feel that sometimes too. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's perfectly. It's honest because yeah. that's how the world will respond to some of their behavior. So it's okay if we show them that, right? The good enough mother yes. <laughs> definitely fall into that category. Human. I told my children they were home for the holidays, and I said they they were they've been sharing with me what they've been noticing in college kids in college and how uh-huh. most kids are on anti anxiety meds and stuff, and they said. So what was your plan? I said it was just good enough so that you would be interesting, have a good sense of humor, and that's and that you knew you were raised by human beings and not, you know, flawed human beings. They're like, you pulled that off. 
Well done, mom. It's a good compliment. You were flawed, mom. And I'm like, see you for that and still love you. Right. If your kids can say that at the end of the day, we've done a good job. So, um, so where were we on the, I I got off track a little bit on that graciousness saving. So when we can't be fully gracious and playful and lighthearted, that we can find a place of confidence, like you just said, mom's okay. And so I know I'm okay mm-hmm. because mom's okay. And that um, Janet Lansbury calls it confident momentum. I love that. Yeah. That we have that confident momentum that we can fill them up, do the beautiful connection, like your sister connects her children to all the loved ones release them into the night and step away knowing that there's an imminent return coming together in the morning, reuniting, going on with our day. Mm -hmm. And that's that bridge. Yes. That's that bridge that we're, we're creating, but giving them that place. Now, what I do tell parents also is if we, say the safety word too much. You're safe. You're safe. You're safe. It starts to sound a little insecure. Yes. Like, why are you saying it so much if it's true? It's like when I work with parents and potty learning, you know, I have full confidence that you're going to go on that potty when you're ready. Like, yeah, you say that a couple of times because if you say it every day, it doesn't sound confident. Right. And I think, you know, this is true. You know, a lot of sleep stuff is either a form of or just very adjacent to anxiety stuff, right? I do a ton of work with families who have kids with anxiety. Yes. Whether it's impacting their sleep or not, right? Right. Um, Although it often does, right? There's usually something there. But one of the things that we talk about with anxiety treatment is, you know, one, the goal of working on treating anxiety and reducing symptoms of anxiety is not to not feel anxious. The goal of that treatment is to increase tolerance for anxiety. And one of the ways we do that is by not taking it away from our kids, not rescuing them from the feeling. And to communicate, yes, I see that you're feeling anxious right now. That's a hard feeling. And I know you can handle that feeling so that we're communicating also some confidence that they can tolerate this feeling. And that's sort of the embodiment we want to hold as parents. And that plays out with sleep too, I would imagine, very much so. Um, because, you know, it, what you don't, it doesn't even have to be anxiety. You don't have to say the word anxiety to a kid. No. You can just say, oh, it's really hard to say goodnight. Yeah, it's hard and to wake up the day. Yeah. And I know you can handle this feeling, you know. I will see that's, you in the morning. Yes. Our behavior is really showing them they can handle it because it's not just anxiety. What they're really, it's anxiety is part of it, is grief. Mm. So the big change from infancy, what we were talking about before, the big change from infancy to toddlerhood is going from a natural, healthy enmeshment to untangling that slowly over the course of months, years into autonomy. And to make that bridge, our children lose part of the enmeshment. Yes. And I, I think on some level, it's so human. There's a part of us always that has a longing to get back to that enmeshed womb, cared for. Oh, my God. 
how I would love someone to come into my house and fix everything mm-hmm. <laughs> and just like do it all for me. They yeah. lose that and they go through grief and they, boy, there's nothing like a toddler that can rapid cycle through the stages of grief, right? Deny <laughs> bargaining. Oh, that's bargaining. A my favorite one. Bargaining, <laughs> sadness, anger, right? Mm. Yep. And then coming to acceptance and you used the word embodied. I think like, what is a better time in human existence when the natural, all of these things are rising up in the toddler to meet it in a full embodied place that they can embody this and learn through embodiment because you know, we're all up in our heads and then we talk about it and then we all have to get to the embodied somatic practices to really undo it. But while they're confronting it, to let them feel the energy move in and out of their body and learn, oh, that passed. Yes, that is exactly what I say. So my daughter has a lot of tantrums, especially at night. Mm. This is when she lets it all out. Yeah. And what I always say to her after, and some, she has a very sensitive nervous system. And when she, she will really melt down and it gets really intense for her. And then afterwards, there's like this moment where it's almost like she like bursts, she like reaches through this, this like wall of stuff and like kind of pulls herself out through it. And she's like her again. It happens kind of instantly. Like it's a bit of a fade, but then it's like, boom, she's her again. And And in that moment, she'll like want me to hold her and she'll kind of just like fall into me. And I always say to her, I goes, that came and it went, Yes, you're back to you again. And she'll nod and she knows exactly what I'm, she's three. Like she knows exactly what I'm saying. She's feeling that. And I think the, what I always am like really hoping to communicate to her for her to internalize in those moments is that she is going through an experience. She isn't, you know, it's not her or, you know, it's, it's not about who she is. It's that something is passing through her and it comes and it goes and she's always her. Yes. That's so, what, a, what an amazing seed of resilience in her that she'll be able to take through full brain development. Mm-hmm. I remember one of the most powerful things when I started working on my anxiety really seriously after I had children. <laughs> I was like, oh boy, I better, I better work on this, was not to identify as I have anxiety or I am anxious, but that I have this experience with anxiety. Yes. And it immediately kind of flipped my brain into curiosity. And that's the child state, curiosity, creativity. Like how can I creatively work with this experience that I have Mm -hmm. in my nervous system that I can make it more fluid and more flexible and uh, yeah, it it was really changed it, changed it for me. Yeah, pretty quickly. And then working with my children and their separation, their natural separation anxiety that came up, working with them through that was really healing on a deep level. So I invite parents to also 
the material that comes up in themselves is coming up to also heal as they're working with the child. And I, you know, I, I look at parenting, it, parenting is kind of a parallel process, you know, it's that mm-hmm. thing that I guess as a therapist, you're not really supposed to do <laughs> with a client is like get too deep into the parallel process with them, right. To have enough to feel with them, mm-hmm. to feel alongside of them, but not get in there and get too much deeply and feeling all their stuff for them. Right. But as a parent, it's totally like one, fortunately, as parents, we are not our child's therapists. We are, (laughs) we are enmeshed with them in a way that is appropriate and healthy. Sometimes we are too enmeshed and we need to figure out a way to tolerate that separation ourselves. Yeah. Right. Cause I, I, I work with so many parents who, their kids are having trouble sleeping or their kids are having trouble separating before bed or in the middle of the night when they wake up. Um, But then when I talk to them about like, okay, so how do we shift our behavior as parents? You know, how do we change the accommodations that we might be doing to help take away that feeling of anxiety for them? And then they say, but they'll feel anxious, but they'll feel scared or they'll feel they won't be able to handle it. And, you know, I think there's a very big difference between they will feel discomfort yeah, and they can't handle it. Yes. And I think our own anxiety around like letting go of our role of the enmeshed, I take, I, I, I feel your feelings for you. I take them away for you. So you don't have to feel them. Right. Which comes from a really natural instinct in a parent too. Oh, I don't, I mean. It's so, we, it's so well intentioned. Yeah. And it can be, you know, it's like the, that old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> it's so well-intentioned, but you end up in this hell. Yeah. That you're Where you don't hungry. sleep. So what I, I verbatim, parents say that to me, but, but then they're going to feel this and then they're not going to be able to handle it. And I was like, well, what about if they feel this and they can handle it? And then they feel that and they can handle it. And at that moment where they can't handle it, that's where you come and hold the space for them and reassure them and realign them and co-regulate with them and help their nervous system come to a place where then they can have the feelings and handle it. And then they can handle it. And then they can handle it. And that moment they can't handle it. They know we're there for him, for them. Uh, uh, Parents will often say, but if I go to them when the cry gets intense, right? Like that we're, I'm helping parents to discern struggle and suffering. If I go to them when the cry gets intense, doesn't that just teach them that I'm, that I'm just going to come to them when they cry. And I'm like, mm, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> like, it, you know, we want our beloveds, any beloved, if I get really upset, when all humans get to a point where we're out of our zone of tolerance and I can't handle it. And as much as I'm, you know, being a grown up and taking charge of my own nervous system, we need a co-regulatory being our, our loved ones to come and sit and either a good girlfriend or partner or a dog, mm-hmm. <laughs> someone, yeah. someone to, to see us to and see to soothe us. us. And see us. If I'm crying, my cat comes and gets on my chest. Yeah. Sometimes that's enough. Sometimes I need a hug from my partner. Mm-hmm. 
this distinction that you bring up between struggle and suffering, right? If to an untrained ear, it's all crying or it's all protest, right? So how, how do you help parents start to like learn the nuance of the difference between a struggle, which is in my opinion, I think we would agree, we want to let them stretch into that struggle without rescuing yeah. versus versus suffering, in which case we want to protect that sense of attachment safety, right? Yeah. When I'm suffering, the person who keeps me safe will come and be with me. And will they might not take the suffering away. Exactly. They're not still not going to fix it. But get but help me in my self-soothing through other co-soothing to get to the place where then I can manage right. myself and fix it and my nervous system gets to a place where it can relax again. Yeah. So how 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 do you help parents kind of one learn the distinction between those things in their children and then two have a strategy for like what to do in those different right. situations. So it's it's the difference and I think you teach this you go over this about the difference between a tantrum and a meltdown. Mhm. Yeah. So it's in it's in that. So sometimes children have to go through a tantrum, right? And oh, I want to remember to tell you this my new favorite story about Okay, yes. The, my one of my clients. Oh my gosh, it's my favorite thing. I'm so excited. <laughs> anyway, so Teaser. He, he had to have a tantrum. So tantrums usually there's a goal, they want something and underneath it, it, the child come going to bed is letting go. They're letting go to the parent. They want more connection. They want more reassurance. They want, they just want more. And so there are a lot of words coming out. And there's a lot of that. That would be probably the bargaining stage of grief. Yes. <laughs> letting go and they're bargaining. So that we can come and go from that. And we can tell the child, I hear you. I know you're having a hard time. I'm going to go do X and then I'm going to come back and check on you. I'm going to go do Y. I'm going to come back X, Y, Z. You know, we're, we're telling them where we are in the house. That also gives them an expanded sense of, the, you know, the, the home as mm -hmm. we're all here. No one ever, you know, in the child's mind, I mean, no one ever just leaves them in the house at night we're we're there you can hear us um so we're coming and going to support that a meltdown is they're really just kind of out of there either overtired overwrought they're out of their zone and there's usually no words coming out they lose language mm -hmm. it's or it's like a kind of pair like a phrase that they repeat repeat yes repeat. yeah and they're, not, they're, exactly they're in that it's not mood. like a communication it's just i can't stop this Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's almost like they get stuck in a loop mm -hmm. and they're just too, their, their nervous system's too activated. So that needs more presence, grounding, holding, coming in and really being yeah. with them during that, the struggle, if they're going through a tantrum, that struggle phase, sometimes I say, you know, if they're really struggling intensely, come and just sit down and just be with that. Just be with that. Just hang there and breathe mm -hmm. and be with it. When it starts to lighten up, that's where we can lighten up. 
And when we leave, we can say, you know what? I always have three more kisses. Where do you want them? I'm coming back. Where do you want those kisses? Um, do you want them in the lovey? Do you want them on your hand, on your face? You know, and so we can get a little lighthearted. We don't want to, we want to meet the feeling that's happening. We never want to try to, the, the challenge with using play and story is sometimes parents get into this kind of hype session, like, I'm going to make this so much fun and I'm going to make, and we miss what's really going on. Like we want, if the child's sad, we don't want to be in this kind of, or if they're. That's the attunement piece. We want to be attuned to the emotional state of our kid and match it. And, and accurately mirror it. Yes. And so we can mirror it in our coming and going or our presence in our staying and then when we're tuned in, there's a moment where they, and that's our cue. Okay. And we give it a beat and then we start the coming and going again. So I had a client with, he's almost three, very verbal, mm-hmm. almost three-year-old. And they, when we started, it was all the things. He was in bed, nursing all night long, like not nursing all night long, because by then, you know, he'd, maybe he'd latch on a couple of times just for comfort. And so we'd done the whole transition. He was sleeping in his room. And I recommend gates because it gives the child more access to the rest of the house. And we do a process where we incorporate the gate into the story. It was a garden and He had his monkey and his, I forget what his other lovey was. So everything was great. And then they went away for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And I love it when this happens. So it's like, you know, you're going to go away for Christmas, consciously on purpose, get off of the plan. And then we're going to get back on when you get home. So he went there and it was all the family was there and he got to sleep with grandma because I grandparent relationships, that is a sacred relationship. And we just let them do whatever the heck they want to do. That's grandma style. It's special with grandma. Well, he came home and they went back in the room and the gate was up and he just said, no. And he was like, no, I want it like it was. And he had to go through a big tantrum, arched back, like doing, you know, that when they get on the floor and they go and spin in circles yes, on the floor. So his dad just walked in and sat down with, sat down the end of his bed and just stayed with him. He said, I know it was really fun. And now we're back home and this is, we're going back to the way it was. Ah! I mean, he just lost it. And then his dad said, he suddenly, he just stood up. He took a deep breath and said, okay, I'm ready for my story. Amazing. Got in bed. And then he looked at his father and he said, I'm still having some big feelings. I think you better take that lamp out of here. I want to throw it against the wall. I was like, oh my gosh. And I said, what did you say? He said, all I could do is thank him. I said, thank you for telling me that. I'll do that. I'll take the lamp out. That was like, is so profound that an almost three-year-old boy 
can like have that much access to his anger and aggressive and, rah, and then calm down and then go, wait, you know what? I'm, I still want to throw that lamp against the wall. Yeah. But Would you the, help me with that? Yeah. But the presence of that father in this story to me is like the real, like, yeah, wow. That three-year-old has some real amazing insight and ability to articulate and and inhibition of impulse, which is really impressive <laughs> in a three-year-old. But, I, um, I was but the, dad, the dad's ability, and this is what I feel like is so hard in parenthood, is the dad's ability to sit on that bed and just tolerate his discomfort Yeah, in witnessing his child's discomfort, his discomfort in perhaps all the thoughts that might be going through his own mind. Like, am I supposed to be doing something about this? Am I, am I I like permitting something? Am I being permissive? Am I not teaching or disciplining appropriately? What is he going to be learning? We have to shut all that noise off. And for him to just be able to do that and sit and tolerate that moment for as long as it takes and then the child could actually have the space to like move through the whole thing. If the dad had interrupted that process by like disciplining or getting mad or teaching or lecturing or leaving him or leaving, it, he would the boy wouldn't have gotten to that place where he was like, "All right, I'm ready now. I'm ready." And yet, I'm still pissed off about it. With like so much permission to be mad. Yeah. It is extraordinary. I mean, that, and so I invite parents like to another thing that's really helpful is if there, if the parent had big feelings as a child and not through any malice or anything, but just weren't really allowed to have that kind of expression. Mm-hmm. Or they could have that expression, but you know the classic thing done with toddlers when they did that was just ignore it. Yeah, just ignore it. The, so that they weren't the parent wasn't truly seen or heard in that intense emotional expression. That if you can get in touch with almost a little bit of joy that you're allowing your child to have it, that it helps. Mm-hmm. Like a little bit of, I'm giving, this is a gift that I'm giving you. I know it's tough. I know you can handle it. And I know on the other side, it's like when you hold your daughter and tell her, you're, you're on the other side. You got through it. That's a gift. Yeah. That's a it's gift. So, it's so powerful. It's Ugh. so powerful. The two biggest gifts of Rye that I see in my children is their ability to hang with difficult conversations, difficult moments, challenge, really hang in there, go through it, express their feelings, move on. And it's like, yeah, we had one at breakfast, real before breakfast. My daughter came down and let all of us have it. My son, my partner, (laughs) he got it too. I got, and then we just worked through it, moved through it. It's like, okay, everybody sit down, let's have some breakfast. It wasn't that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. That and strong embodied boundaries yeah. of knowing where they're, no, thank you. Yeah. And I think both of those are results of the of a child having the permission 
both explicit and implicit permission to have the feelings. Yes. And not necessarily, but also not always the behaviors, right? So this, and this is same with sleep, right? You can have the feelings, but we're going back to the routine. Yeah. We're going back to the routine and that date's going to hold. The boundary's going to hold. Your feelings, your expression, because I think that's, that's an equal need, attachment and authenticity, expression. Mm -hmm. You can have that, but it doesn't change my job. My job, I'm still going to be here and be with you and I'm still going to hold the boundary. Right. And I could do that with so much warmth, with so much emotional attunement, with so much confidence. And, and that's, I think that's the sweet spot right there. It is. And it's not going to last. The I know that I remember that fear from as a parent. It's like, oh boy, if I let this cat out of the bag, if I let this really come to full fruition expression, it's going to go on and it's never going to stop. Yes, that's the fear. Been here right? for hours. That was my fear, and it right. never. Actually, the more space I gave to it, the less time it took. Right, and I think that's just you know it, we could talk about the nuance of that all to, all for a whole <laughs> other episode. Maybe we should have more. We've got to do more. I'm sure. And if people are listening and they have more questions for Eileen, oh. we'll just send them to me. You know, and we'll we'll get her back because we could really talk about this for a long time. But if people want to know how they can work with you or to get in touch with you or learn more about the work you do, where can they find you? CompassionateSleepSolutions.com. Amazing. That's where you can find me. And I do offer a uh, free introductory 20 minute, just kind of meet and greet, get to know each other and see if we're a good fit. And um, yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here. I am... I just love talking with you always. And this was like really illuminating. I hope that parents got a lot out of this. Thank you. I always get so much out of um, our conversations and your information. I really, I I love your work. I'm a huge fan. So thank you. I deeply appreciate that. Oh, coming from you. Um, All right. Well, thank you. This episode really laid a nice, strong foundation for understanding how to use a relational approach, so leaning into attachment theory and your parent-child bond to help your toddler or your young child form a really healthy relationship to sleep. However, sometimes you just need concrete strategies that's going to make bedtime run more smoothly. And that is why I created a free toddler sleep workbook with seven things you can start doing tonight that will help you create a more peaceful and effective nighttime routine. Plus, pro tips to help you take these techniques to the next level and apply them to your unique kiddo. So to download my free guide, Addressing Sleep Struggles During the Toddler Years, go to my website, drsarahbren.com and click the resources tab. That's drsarahbren.com forward slash resources and get started turning your child's sleep struggles into solutions. So thanks for listening and don't be a stranger. Thank you.